Uh, one of the forgotten truths of the Reformation, if you remember, on October 31st, we walked through the Protestant Reformation, right? The big name you probably remember is Martin Luther, and John Calvin is also a big name. But in the Reformation, one of the big things that came out uh, very prominently was the biblical understanding of what we call a vocation. Um, I learned this, that the Latin behind the word voco means to call or a calling. So vocation means a calling, right? The idea of calling was given uh, prior to to the Reformation, was given only to those who were in the priesthood. So if you were a Roman Catholic priest, you had a special calling, uh, you're actually the only one who had a calling because, well, after all, you were called to be a priest. There is no higher life than to be a priest. That was the sense that was preached, that was taught, that was Catholic doctrine, that to be a priest or to be a, a ministerial leadership was a higher position than a quote-unquote secular life, than a regular life as a believer. Roman Catholic priests, therefore, were they would take certain vows, they would do certain things to uh, maybe heighten their view or to demonstrate the high calling of being a priest. Uh, they would be celibate, so they'd be fully devoted to the church, and they would often take vows of poverty so they could stay free from worldly ties of social problems, economic dependency, that kind of thing. The regular life was seen to be less than holy than that of a priest. But the reformers, like John Calvin and Martin Luther, wrote and preached profoundly against this idea. They rightly exalted that marriage should not be given up, that there is a beauty in marriage and a beauty in family. They also taught that the workplace of a Christian is necessary to the Christian life. One of the main things that this falls under, you've probably heard this phrase, is the priesthood of all believers. So every Christian has a priesthood, right? You've probably heard that phrase. It's in 1 Peter pretty strongly. It's also throughout the Bible. So it doesn't mean that every Christian is a pastor. So it doesn't mean that, well, if I'm a Christian, I better find a church to to pastor. That's not what it means. The priesthood of all believers rather means that every Christian has a calling to function as a priest. What does a priest primarily do? Well, they do primarily two things. They proclaim God's word and they offer sacrifice, right? Since Jesus laid down his sacrifice for us, Romans 12 says that we're supposed to be a living sacrifice. So as a Christian, you have two callings in life primarily. To proclaim the word of God and to lay down your life as a sacrifice, as an offering unto God. That happens daily, according to the reformers, in your vocation, in your calling. So therefore, every Christian is called by God. You have a lot assigned to you in life. All of your life is unto the glory of God and to love your neighbor. Now, not only does that give immense purpose in life, but it ensures you that you exist not just for yourself, but for God. And in 1 Corinthians 7, that's what Paul is going to speak about. I want to give you maybe a helpful tip here. Uh, when you're reading your Bible, a good tip to remember is look for repetition. So if you just look at 17 through 24, you don't have to count them. I'll, I count them for you. Uh, the word call or called, E-D, is used eight times in this, par- in this little section. So therefore, what is the point of this passage? Well, calling, right? If it's being repeated, that must be the point, right? So a helpful way to think about that, just a helpful tidbit I'll throw at you. Paul's main charge here is calling. Wherever you are, you are to make every place a mini church, a little tabernacle. You are a minister wherever you go. You are a missionary wherever you go. And that is Paul's point. So let's jump in. Look at verse 17. 
Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. So in the previous 16 verses, remember we talked about marriage and singleness and divorce. And what's happening is the Corinthians are wondering, okay, so we've been converted. Should I just overcorrect everything and just ditch all I have and change completely? And Paul's charge in verse 17 is, no, 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 slow down. As I would tell my son, calm down, back up a little bit, lead the life you've been called to. Well, what if I'm married to an unbeliever? Lead the life you're called to lead. That's what verse 17 is directly stating. So here's a good question people sometimes ask. Did I marry the right person? Oh man, I hope I did. I have pastoral advice for you. Um, here's how you can know. Um, go to your file cabinet. There should be a marriage license in there. Take it out. Look at it. You're correct. You did. So good advice to know. You married the right person. It's okay to stay with them. You're supposed to. That's the command here. Lead the life you're called to live. Now, Paul is saying that that commandment carries into more than just marriage. It goes into your life as a believer. So in a larger sense, what we mean is, if you look at verse 17, that God has assigned to us a life, a calling. In a larger sense, that means that God is sovereign over your life. He rules everything. Uh, Psalm 135, 6, that says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So God reigns over all things in the big picture. But in a smaller sense, we can recognize that our personal life, every detail has been, you can say planned, you can say predestined, same thing, by God. He makes no mistakes. He does not error. He does all things well. Your life has been scripted out by God's love and good pleasure. Therefore, as a Christian, your position in life right now is planned, whether you're a parent or a grandparent, working or retired, the neighborhood you live in, the grocery store you shop at, the year you were born, the year you live, the circumstances, everything, everything has been planned for that. And that's all wrapped into your calling as a Christian. So every Christian, therefore, has a unique calling under God's providence. In God's grace, he rescued you, and now you have work to do. People always wonder, well, now that I'm saved, why can't God just zap us up into heaven? I think that would be great. But... You have been called to something just as important. Um, whenever I have a, I'll just be up front, I'm the most uncourt. So I can throw a baseball pretty good, decent. I can shoot a basket. I can throw a frisbee. I can run. When it comes to hammering a nail, I mean, it's like Tim Allen on home improvement. I just can't get it right. I just butcher it, okay? But what Jude does, Jude, by my son, I'll say, well, Daddy, can I help you? He doesn't really help. He just comes alongside and we share in the joy of helping, right? In a sense, God has assigned to you a task, and you are his partner. You're not really helping God. He doesn't need your help. But he's saying, why don't you come along, and let's partner together, and let's, let's fulfill the mission of God. That's, that's what God has done to you. Uh, Martin Luther said this, that all positions in life are blessed through faith or cursed through lack of faith, meaning if you're a Christian, your calling in life is already enhanced. It's already good. It's blessed because you're a believer. And for those who are not Christians, their calling in life, their vocation, their job is going, is going to continually show them everything you're doing is vanity. If you're not a believer, it's going to feel like a curse. It's nothing. It's empty. It's shallow. There's something wrong. There's something missing. And that's how God's arranged the unbeliever. Your life, if you're a believer, has been arranged in such a way that you can think, I'm here not for myself. Like differing roles in the military, all of us have different assignments, some bigger, some smaller. 
some in the front lines, some not. Regardless of your calling, no matter your office, we are all to be in our homes, in our offices, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our grocery stores, on our street, to be little Christs. That is a lot God has assigned to you. And I know that's a big intro, but I'm doing it because Paul's going to give two big illustrations. So this is the main point of the sermon, is that chunk. He's going to walk through two illustrations, verses 18 and 19. He's going to talk about circumcision. Verses 21 through 22, he's going to talk about being a slave, being a freedman. And he's going to back it up with illustrations that are really helpful, that really give you a round picture of calling. So let's start with the first look at verse 18. This has to do with circumcision. Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles, circumcision and uncircumcision. So the, the world in Paul's day was very divided. And the Corinthian church, there were typically two kinds of people. He's addressing these two now. Now for me, I usually think there's three types of people in the world. Those who can count and those who can't. That joke just landed flat on his face. All right, keep going. With Paul, in the early church, there were basically two types of people. There were Jews and they were Gentiles. There were those who came from a Jewish background. And there's everybody else. I thought that was really funny, but, man, you guys are rough. All right. So Jewish converts to Christ wrestled with doing what? Leaving Jewish tradition, right? I've been a Jew all my life, and you're saying i got to drop it all. What do I do, Paul? Well, this is what Paul is going to speak about. In the original language, look at verse 18. It says, removing the mark of circumcision. Without, without being very descriptive here for you, uh, we have outside sources uh, from, the, from the ancient world that if you were a male who was circumcised, you could get a physical surgery that would hide marks of circumcision. Because think about it, in athletics or in bathing, assuming you did it without clothes. So if you were around Gentile converts, you didn't want people to think you were a Jew convert, because what would they say? Oh, good, you're a Jewish. Great, great to be around you. Are you going to guilt us? Or not? Like, there's a stigma, right? There's this confrontation. And Paul is emphatically saying, don't change it. That's not the point, right? Remain how God has called you. Don't worry about the outer. It's okay. That's not what we're talking about, right? Same with Gentile converts, right? They didn't have the marks of circumcision. They were probably pagans. They were, if you think, if you think of the letter there in Corinth, they were probably wild and outright ungodly as the Jews would see them. And now they're converted. And the Jews would think, oh, good. Look who showed up, right? You, you, you need to look like us if you want to come here. You need to fit in a little more. Get the circumcision. Fit the agenda. And Paul is again saying, that is not what you're supposed to do. Remain how God's called. It's okay to be how you've been called, right? That's what Paul is blasting against in, verses, in verse 18. So together, we as a church can have a similar understanding. We must encourage one another to continue on the path of holiness that God has for another. So your life is a lot different than people around you. Different aspects, different ages, different callings, different stages in life. We don't need them to conform to us. Instead, we should pray for one another, confess our sins to one another, confess our frustration with our lot in life to one another, and then would you pray for me to be content because I'm just not content where I'm at. I'm frustrated with my life, and I shouldn't be. I need faith. Can you please pray for me? That's how we should act as a church, not get over it and change. No, no, can you please help me? I need not animosity, but can you please help me? I'm weak here. That's what we need to do as believers in the church. Look at verse 19. For neither, this is why Paul says this, for because neither circumcision counts for anything, 
nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So the true identity of a Christian is not their exterior looks, but their inward love. That is Paul's thrust here in this passage. The inner man is what God delights in. God is glorified not by exterior conformity, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but God delights in the inward being and the inward heart that loves him. Uh, you probably know the famous words in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He rebukes the Pharisees many times by saying things like this. Don't be like the hypocrites in the synagogues and the streets that they may be praised. So when they're giving, they're doing it with loud trumpets to be seen. Jesus says, when you give to the need, don't let your left hand do what your right hand is doing. Same with praying. Jesus addresses them praying the next section. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Same with fasting. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their face so it may be seen by others. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So what Jesus is striking is this outward display of religion. Well, if I can look really holy, I'll get praise. And Jesus is saying, if that's what you're doing, then you're getting what you want. That's not what God delights in. He delights in the inward man, right? Think of Matthew 23 again, probably one of the most shocking passages in the Bible, where gentle Jesus turns into a lion, it seems like. Matthew 23, Jesus says this about the Pharisees. He gives very similar words that, again, you've probably heard. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like, this beautiful statement, whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleansliness. So God is not against outward obedience. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you're just putting on a show, putting on a front, right? A hypocrite, the Greek word means people who put on a mask and perform in a play right? God hates that. He is not impressed with good acts, with false motives. He sees right through fake Christianity. His extra vision, he sees right through, he sees to the heart. That's what he delights in. The world may be fooled, but God will not be fooled, right? And this is what Paul is speaking about in verse 19. What matters most? Keeping the commandments of God. This is not outward like circumcision, but inward like a love for God, right? Galatians 6 says, the same thing, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Jesus said the same, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not just outward, that's inward. So what does this mean? If you're a Christian, you don't have to quit your job and become a pastor. You don't have to change your job because you're a believer. Of course, now if you work at a brothel, you need to change your job. Sell drugs. You need to change your job, work for the mafia. Don't tell me, change your job, I'm scared. But you don't all have to become pastors. That's not at all what the charge is. As a matter of fact, we need more people who are not pastors to be lay people in the world. That's what Paul is getting at. Be a Christian wherever you are. God's called you to that role to do what? To keep the commandments of God. Ephesians 2 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So therefore, your outward vocation in life remains the same, but your inward being has been transformed to be like Christ. 
Again, God delights not in the outward doing, you could say, but in the inward being. That's the main point. To put it very simply, the home you live in, they need you to be a Christian in that home. The job you have, they need you to be a Christian in that job. God needs you to be there. The neighborhood you live in, the town you live in, the grocery store you go to every Tuesday to get your groceries. You need to be there as a believer. Do not leave. Your calling is to be holy wherever you go. As Christians, then, we should think about work much differently than the world does. Every worldly person thinks about work as such a drag. Let me give you an example. You've heard the phrase, we work for the weekend, right? Well, why is that? Well, because work is stupid. Isn't that the assumption? Work is bad. Work is evil. It's a drag. I don't want to be here. What's the biblical command? Work is good. Right? Ugh, Mondays. I can't stay up all night anymore. I feel that way too. But that is wrong. What's wrong with Monday? It's me. I'm the problem. I'm discontent, right? It's not a, it's not, God has chosen to give me a job to where I work on these days. He's chosen me to entrust it to that. My grumbling is a sign of my ungratefulness, my rejection of God's goodness. I know it's funny, but we all act that way. Philippians 2 says we shouldn't grumble. We shouldn't grumble about anything. Matter of fact, I don't like that verse. I'm going to grumble about it. But we shouldn't grumble. We should be salty. We should be bright in the world, as Jesus says, right? Secondly, you do have a life of ministry. You're to make every area of life a mission field because every area of life is a mission field. If you're at home, you have children or grandchildren who are probably not Christians. You want a mission trip? Go to the kitchen. They follow you around all the time. They're unbelievers, right? Minister to them. Do you have unbelieving coworkers? Do you have an unconverted checkout clerk you see every, like, every Tuesday, every Thursday? Guys, you are surrounded by unbelievers. And guess what you are? You are a believer. You are probably the only one they will ever meet, ever think about, ever see. So the question is, do they, do your unbelieving coworkers, friends, do they know you are a Christian? To put it even more shockingly, would they be surprised to know, oh, you're a Christian? I never would have thought that. When was the last time you prayed for your unbelieving family or coworkers? That's what Paul is saying. You have a calling. Live out your calling. Then in verses 21 through 22, Paul gives another illustration that's very helpful um, and kind of rounds out the entirety of this section. Again, if you're wondering why does Paul... So he's repeating this idea over and over. That means the Bible is making it very clear. You need to listen. This This is clear. This is helpful. This needs to be hammered into our brains at least twice, right? He gives another picture. talks about slavery and masters in Corinth. Now, I want to be brief here about slavery because I don't have a whole dialogue about it, but I do want to say a couple things. Uh, To be simple, uh, slavery in the Bible is nothing like what we have in American history. Not even close. So a lot of times our Bibles translate the word slaves as bond servants, right? You probably have that. Or maybe it just says servant. That's because in America, if we read it, we would say slaves. It's race. It's not what it is. Slavery in the Bible is not race. 
As a matter of fact, slavery in the ancient world was typically not race at all. Oftentimes, slaves were captives of war. You destroy a country, hey, free labor, just take them all, right? It wasn't because they're racist, it's because well, work's free, just take them, right? In the Old Testament, as a matter of fact, you, you could actually sell yourself or your family into slavery to pay off a debt. And your master would, would provide for you everything, your house, work, pay, maybe a wife if you're single. It's kind of a good deal. Right? Why would I leave? I, get, I, have, I, have a, I have a place to stay and a wife. I'm, I'll serve you all day. So it's not this racial, degrading, ethnic issue. It is about more of a work. In Paul's day, as a matter of fact, slavery was so common that it's thought that in any city in the Roman world, 20 to 30% of people were actually slaves. They worked regular jobs in the town or they were servants in a wealthy home. Some were teachers and tutors, some were shopkeepers, etc. But the point is, there was a stigma, you can probably imagine. Oh, you're a slave, huh? How was the freedom? Real good, isn't it? You're owned by somebody else. A lot of times, slaves were very wealthy. They had great jobs, even a great family. And even if they chose to remain as such, you can imagine the constant nagging thought you'd hear from other people. Oh, but you can't really come. Why don't you ask your master? <laughs> Slave, right? Can, can, you, can you feel? I mean, that's, what I, that's how I'd act. I'd be a jerk if I was a non-Christian, right? That's how we would act. That makes sense, right? So there's confusion about what to do in Paul's day. What should we do? Should I ditch slavery? Should I become a slave too? What, what, what should we do? And Paul addressed that in verse 22. In Christ, he says, we are both slaves and freedmen. Those who were slaves could be released from the rule of the slave by their master. No longer a slave, but also no longer free. There's a new class of people. They are called the freedmen. It doesn't mean that they have no master. What it means is they're a different class. So they're not born without a master. Uh, they're no longer a slave. They're a third category. They now have a new relationship. Oftentimes the master would let them free, but he would now act as their patron or as a financial provider. The slave was now a dependent. As a matter of fact, the slave was actually welcomed into the family, into the home of the master, not as a slave, but as family. Now as a freedman, they would take on the name of the master. It'd actually be a great honor. You kind of hope to be like in a wealthy person's home, right? You know, my master's Bill Gates, so... A pretty good job over here, right? That was kind of, yeah, my master works for Roman government, so pretty good job, right? That was, you're kind of hoping to have a good master, right? It's actually a great honor to have a ranking official or a wealthy person be your master. We actually have evidence of tombstones of people who were freedmen who died, who on their tombstone, they would write uh, Mark, freedmen of their patron's name. So it was such an honor to have such a great master. Like, wow, I identify with that guy. Got a pretty good house. Got a good job. Got a good master. Therefore, to be a freedman of the Lord, Paul said, if you look at your text here, verse 22, to be a freedman of the Lord is to be a part of Christ. To identify with Christ is a superior identity than any earthly calling, any earthly master. Your identity is no longer as a degrading slave, so to speak, but as a, you're in the household of Christ, just as you are as a freedman. All earthly markers and identifiers are out the door. You identify with Christ. That's, that's who the freedmen were, right? 
I'm one of Christ's. I'm no longer a slave, right? Now, what's the reverse? Those who are freedmen are now being identified as, look at verse 22 again, as slaves. So Christians are both freedmen. And now he's saying those who are likewise he who was free when called is a bondservant or is a slave of Christ. In the ancient world, slaves had no freedom. They had no rights. They didn't own anything. Uh, they couldn't even serve like as like a, a jury in a law. They couldn't give testimony. They could not serve in the military. Uh, they were totally owned, cared for, provided for, and totally dependent upon their master. They were fully owned by their master. They were required to be completely available at any beck and call. They were subject to their master's will, not their own. Hence, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Reward and discipline came from your master. Any status a slave had in the world was only because of his relationship to his master. Well, you're nothing but your master. He's a big deal, so you're a pretty big deal now all of a sudden too. Hence, the honor came again from being a slave in like Caesar's house, as we have in the New Testament mentioned. Therefore, to be a slave of Christ is to be fully owned by him. You have no other obligation in life but your master's will. You are a slave. As a Christian, you exist to please Christ, to find your all in him, and to look to him for life and provision and everything. Do you see what Paul's getting at? There's no distinction. Look at verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants or slaves of men. The you here is plural. So he's not just saying you, he's saying y'all. So y'all, bondservants and freedmen, you were both bought with a price. They're thinking, are you, what do you mean bond? I'm still owner. I'm still under this ownership, right? Paul is saying it, something I hope you see is drastically like shocking. Regardless of your status, Greeks, Jews, freedmen, slaves, circumcised, uncircumcised, Christ owns you. You have no other calling. You have no other master. Christ owns you. You are not your own. You are his slave. He is your master. He is your Lord. Therefore, do not submit to earthly and worldly obligations of conformity. Colossians 3.23 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. So every vocation in life is ultimately unto Jesus Christ. All of your life, you are tethered to Jesus. Martin Luther again says this, For the one who is called in poverty is rich before God. The one who is called in riches is poor before God. The one who is called in youth is old before God. The one who is called in age is young before God. The one who is called in ugliness is beautiful before God. The one who is called as a layman is a priest before God. All this is true because faith makes us all equal before God. There is no difference of person or status that will count. So Christian, consider your significance in the world. You do not represent yourself. You represent your master. Everything you do is tied to him. You've been bought with a price. Look at verse 24. Here's the summary he gives again. So, brothers... In whatever condition each is called, therefore let him remain with God. So your condition in life, your calling in life, what is Paul's charge? 
remain. Firmly in faith, slaves to Christ. doesn't matter who your boss is. You're a slave to Christ. So if you obey the commands of God, you're a good worker. Your condition is ultimately, regardless of what you do, your condition in life is always those last two words. You are with God. So in your role at home, at the office, in the field, in the truck, at the shop is fully, completely with God. All that you do, he is with you to strengthen you, but also to enable you to remember that you are called to be God-centered. All of life is not really about us, is it? Isn't that good? If it was, it would be a miserable lot. You think I grumble now? If I wasn't a believer, I'd be even more grumbly. So to close, I want to give you two brief summary points that I hope you'll find helpful. Number one, contentment. 1 Timothy 6 says that godliness with contentment is great gain. So therefore, as a Christian, you must fight for contentment. The grass always looks greener, doesn't it? There's a story of these two cows that were hanging their heads over the other neighbor, neighborhood cow's fence, eating the grass on their side. They got really hungry because they're eating the grass on their side. They realized, man, I'm just starving. There's grass all behind them. Stupid illustration. But the point is, is stop looking to the other fence. You have all you need. Stop looking over there. Be content. Other pastures always look better fed. Always, grass always looks greener. The world is a restless place, is it not? New jobs, new houses, new spouses, new car, new city, etc. The Christian call is simply fight for contentment in this life. How do you do that? By faith, you recognize God's sovereignty in your vocation. Where you are in life has been planned by God. Don't kick against the goads. You can trust him. Jesus himself was a lowly carpenter for 30 years. He worked to the glory of God every single day. By faith, remain working for the Lord. Number two, ministry. All that you are as a Christian has been crafted and designed along with your job and your calling. Recognize where you are in the world. As I said before, you may be the only Christian that people ever know. Isn't that shocking? We watched the video about Annie Armstrong just a while ago. Uh, it's true. I've met people who live in Kansas City, who live in Liberty, who live in Illinois. Name a city where I've talked to someone. And they've never heard of the gospel. And you think, there's a church 10 feet away. Are you kidding me? They really do exist. It is shocking. I mean, it's, you don't know who he is? No. Never heard of him? Maybe a name. It's shocking. You may be the only Bible people ever read. Romans 10 says this. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him who they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So what is the unbeliever's hope? You. You've been sent. Therefore, do not shy from ministering to them. Pray for them. Pray for courage to talk to them. Pray for a door to open. My advice, pray for a door to open and just kick the door open. You just got to open it. 
Maybe not kick it, maybe gently open it. But point is, pray for grace and do so. As the hymn rightly says, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. Let's pray.